Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm going to be talking with Jake Pantone from Envy. So Jake is the Vice President of Product and Consumer Experience at Envy, and that's a Utah-based company that makes carbon fiber bike parts, in case you didn't know. So thanks for joining us, Jake. Uh, Thanks for having me. So I want to start with how you got started. How did you first get into the bike industry? I've always had an interest in riding bikes, and it was actually Boy Scouts that got me into riding bikes, where you know, beyond just around the neighborhood, it was, I was doing a, uh, <laughs> I was doing a, the Boy Scout cycling merit badge. And we, I was living up in Washington state at the time. And we had this 50 mile ride to, you know, complete the merit badge. And mm-hmm. it was a, a ride on some rail grade. It was a 50 mile rail grade ride. And it was just pouring rain and miserable and cold. And like, at the end of the day, I was the only, like, I was like one of two of like 20 scouts that finished the ride or something. And <laughs> wow one of the leaders was like, Hey man, you're pretty, uh, you're pretty good at this biking thing, you know, and you should, you should, uh, and he was a pretty serious, uh, century rider. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would classify him as, but he's like, yeah, you should, you should consider racing. And I was like, Oh, you know, that sounds, I like biking. This sounds kind of cool, but that's where I kind of really took to cycling is like, Hey, this is maybe a sport that I could, uh, I could excel at. And maybe I'm a little more talented than the average, the average kid riding a bike. Mm-hmm. As I recall, that merit badge was, it was really focused on like road cycling. At least that was many years ago. Was that the case back? Were you road cyclists? Would you have considered yourself road? They, I think the leaders certainly would have, but I mean, I think all the rides we did were on, I mean, I was on a rigid mongoose hill hilltopper at the time. So oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, we did. I mean, it was all just, we, I think we were all just riding mountain bikes back then, but yeah, everybody run what they brung. Exactly. But yeah, that that uh, that got me into it. My my dad was into cycling quite a bit, but I kind of took that. I kind of was just riding bikes on my own, and then I, you know, like many people in the bike industry, found a job at a bike shop and worked at a variety of shops. Um, in college, I helped open a couple bike shops with some buddies, and then really it was I so I was working at a bike shop through college, and then through some common acquaintances, I met the original founders who started up Envy, which was Edge Composites initially. And I, uh, I was working, kind of splitting my time 50-50 as a wheel builder um, for Envy and then working as the sales marketing manager at a shop here that we, that we, we opened years ago. So yeah, that was, it was really kind of a fast track into this, into the bike industry for me, just mm-hmm. pretty common path, bike racer, worked in a bike shop, was going to school and then, uh, was lucky enough to find edge composites at the time as a fledgling little startup. And, uh, you know, thought, Hey, what the heck, you know, it's, there's no upward mobility in the bike shop. So let's, uh, let's go to the, let's go try this thing out. And, um, that's how I ended up at edge and I've been there ever since. Yeah. So envy now, but yeah, <laughs> been here ever since. So that's, that's cool. So, I mean, when you were like in college, was there a point where you're like, I want to get into the bike industry or did you like study certain 
subjects or major in something thinking that like, Hey, this could be useful in the industry or, or was it more of like just kind of convenient at the time? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think like many guys that are, you know, racing bikes and passionate about the sport, you know, I think there's always this like idea in the back of their mind, like, yeah, I really want to work in a passion enthusiast driven industry. And I was a pretty direct route in college. I went straight to the business side of things, just not having really a clear direction of what I wanted to do. I just figured, you know, business is broad mm-hmm. and there's a lot you can do with a business degree. So I was just taking business classes and courses and uh, thought I was going to be an accountant for a while. thought I was going to be finance. And then I started doing some marketing classes and I really ended up gravitating to that. So ultimately ended up with a marketing um, degree. But uh, as far as uh, a direction, I really thought I was going to end up in uh, personal finance. So <laughs> that's, that's really where I kind of envisioned myself ending up. I didn't really know what a marketing professional did. I, I enjoyed the topic and mm-hmm. I enjoyed the branding and those aspects that are all tied to marketing. But I mean, it was really like the entrepreneurship classes that I found to be the most interesting. And I think I just have somewhat of the an appetite or an aptitude for sort of that level of risk. <laughs> and so it was, it was when the opportunity, when I heard that, you know, having helped start a couple of bike shops. And then when I heard that this composite wheel company was starting up and I was like, Hey, you know, this, this is a cool, this is cool technology. These guys know what they're doing. And, uh, this seems like a company that I should, you know, kind of roll the dice and just let's see where it leads, you know? And, yeah. So, I mean, did I have really specific visions of working in the bike industry? No, but it all happened so hard and fast that I honestly never really um, had time to sit back and even think about another option. I guess if that makes any sense, like yeah. I was in college, so I wasn't, I was like, I still had a year and a half or so left of, left of school. So I wasn't really too hyper-focused on a post-degree career. Mm-hmm. And then I was already at, and I was already at edge composites before I graduated. And so, yeah, it, in some ways it happened, but in others, it was just, uh, I guess it was just sort of the way the cookie crumbled. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we hear, hear about so many people in the industry and it seems like a lot of people who are the enthusiasts or the former athletes, uh, tend to get into like a sales or marketing position. But I mean, every company they need all kinds of people. They need accountants and they need lawyers and all kinds of other people. I mean, do you, are those functions, at least the companies that you've been a part of, are those functions often filled with uh, enthusiasts or do people have to kind of look outside of that uh, to find good people? Yeah, I think it really depends on the, on the needs of the organization. I mean, f- for Envy and really with any you know, enthusiast industry, whether it be, you know, cycling or snow skiing or, you know, all these, all these sort of lifestyle based enthusiast sporting type of Mm -hmm. brands and companies, like you sort of have to be passionate to about the sport or about the product and about what you're, what you're doing to stay in these industries, because it's not wall street and it's not fortune 500 and you're not, you're definitely not making the massive dollars that can, can be made mm-hmm. out there by working in these enthusiast industries. Yeah. So to some degree, you kind of have to love what you're doing. Otherwise there's definitely other options out there for you. And I think what for envy, it is important that you have that, that passion and that, you know, love of the sport to a certain degree to, to, uh, to work here, because if you're not, then you, 
again, you, you're always going to be tempted by a bigger opportunity in terms of monetary gain, potentially. Right. But, yeah. but then you also have to, you know, what, what I think Envy's been really good at is hiring the right people and finding those people that are talented and they're, they do have the skill set necessary to be good accountants and be good at the finance and marketing and everything, but also understand what it is you know, understanding our mission and what it is that we're trying to, trying to achieve yeah. in terms of uh, yeah. product and brand. So, yeah. And then the, obviously there's other functions that, you know, you really don't need somebody that knows or needs, you know, knows anything about cycling. It's a lot more important that they understand, you know, how to repair a machine, mm-hmm. you know, and it's <laughs> whether they love cycling or not, you know, it's it, the important function is that the important part is that they can perform the function that keeps, keeps the machines running, so to speak. So, yeah. So, I mean, you've kind of touched on this, but tell us about Envy. You know, you've been with the company pretty much since the beginning. So how did the company get started? Again, you know, it got started by, um, so it was a a collection of, uh, there was three, I'm probably going to get the number wrong because I was not there initially in the very first conversations, but the original founder was Jason Shears. He uh, had had a composite wheel background, having worked with Paul Liu and at Reynolds in the past. So he had an understanding, obviously, of you know carbon wheel manufacturing, mm-hmm. and then there's a handful of engineers that had that had been at some of those same brands at Reynolds and at Specialized and Easton, you know Easton in the heyday when they were really making a lot of you know the leading fork and the leading handlebars, and mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of there's a handful of engineers with some really sound composite background, you know, and it's it's kind of funny to think that it was pretty early days still in composite manufacturing. And then they they met uh, a couple guys and their cousins that had um, started a few companies. One company, one of the companies they were the, their main company they had started was called Edge Products, and it was a company that um, built performance chips and programmers for trucks for you know the whole mapping of the you know mapping to more horsepower, more fuel efficiency, those sort of like programming units for for trucks. And so they had sold that company and. These guys were hardcore cyclists, and they're actually the guys who had financed um, the bike shop that I had started with a buddy. Well, my buddy started, and I, I had come and worked with him and for him. And so these guys uh, all met through chain of fortuitous circumstances, right? Where mm-hmm. the cycling enthusiasts and the guy who was starting, you know, Jason, who was wanting to start a carbon wheel company, um, all sort of met through the bike shop experience, more or less, and then. Uh, you know, they said, Hey, you know, it'd be, it'd be cool if we, you know, we'd be interested in helping finance this endeavor. And so Envy was, or Edge at the time was started really on this idea that like, we've seen how people are trying to use it to make wheels, but really knowing what we know about carbon, we think we can do it better by doing some things, you know, differently. And the reason others aren't doing this is because it'd be really expensive for them to shift gears. For example, Mm -hmm. if you've already invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in molds without say mold it without spoke holes in them you know it's really expensive to shift your manufacturing processes and techniques and so where we were starting from a, a blue sky approach where we didn't have any you know we didn't we didn't have any sort of investments to we were we were able to basically start from scratch and say like this is how we want to do this and we're we believe that you know we want to mold the rim in one piece and we believe we can mold forks in one piece from the top of the steer tube to the bottom of the dropouts. And we prefer not to bond pieces together. And, you know, we know carbon is strong if it's running continuously or that's when it's maximized. 
and you know you maximize the properties of carbon by running it continuously and not cutting it not having to bond it and so we took that that approach knowing that we could build stronger lighter more tunable carbon structures using the using that design philosophy this sort of function first maximize the material Mm -hmm. type of property not just making carbon for carbon's sake and so that's really the foundation of nv design principles and philosophy and so the first rims you know rims were actually a product name rims and wheel sets were not our first product they were definitely the goal but we started with forks and tubing and we did a fair amount of uh, contract manufacturing outside of the bike industry as well. Hmm. And actually when I first started at edge, I was, Jason was really good about taking me aside and said, Hey, you know, like, I think if we're going to, if you're going to work for this company, you really need to understand composites a little better. And so my first couple months, it's, it was, it's a, it's just a fraction of time at this point, but <laughs> it seemed like quite a bit of time at the time, but I spent my first summer and be doing layups. So I was actually making chain stays and seat stays for Parleys. Oh, wow. So we were selling chain stay and seat stay um, assemblies to Parley cycles. So I was, I was doing layup on those parts. I was also helping with, we were making kayak paddles. So I was making kayak paddle blades and we, we did ice axe handles for black diamond and we did high back bindings for Burton and so we were doing a fair amount of contract manufacturing um, initially. And that the whole purpose there was like, hey, we know we can make carbon. We know there's demand. Um, we need to figure out how to generate some funds to start wheels because wheels are a pricey proposition in terms of just tooling and equipment from a manufacturing standpoint. So we used, we used the contract manufacturing to build up some budget to be able to start really just to keep driving the R&D on the wheel side. Mm-hmm. So our, our first cycling products were, you know, frame parts, tubing, and chain stay, seat stay, those sort of components. And then we um, soon got into forks. And so we actually came out with really what was at the time quite a novel fork concept, which was simply that like, hey, we can mold a fork in one piece from the top of the steer tube to the bottom of the dropout. And it ends up being super light and strong. And again, we can really tune it to ride like we wanted to and at the time the forks of the market were being bonded basically at the steer tube crown or so the crown was basically a solid block of carbon and guys were going in and machining out the carbon to create the brake nut hole whereas like we we molded that into the the fork and so it was a pretty novel construction method for the fork and so we actually gained a lot of repertoire from our forks because they were they were just unique from what anything anybody else had been using up to that date so forks were uh really good for us at the time. And it, it really helped us get into wheels. One of the things that, you know, people say these days a lot is the reason that carbon bikes and, you know, a lot of these carbon parts are made overseas in Asia specifically is because that's where all the expertise is. And that's where, you know, all the manufacturing is set up and everything. Why did Envy choose to focus on U.S. manufacturing and doing that in-house? It's a great topic and a great question. First and foremost, the guys who, the, the engineers like Jason and Kevin and Carlson, the original engineers that came to Envy, you know, a lot of their attraction to the project, we'll call it, we'll call it a project because that's all it was at the time, <laughs> was that they loved making stuff. Like they physically liked touching and designing and touching, like taking the whole product from mm-hmm. conception to like a final product. They enjoyed the entire process. And what they saw was their projects were more and more 
becoming like something they drew up on a computer and then send a design packet over to Asia, but really never had that hands-on experience. They never had the opportunity to take it to the full extent of what their design intentions were because mm-hmm. the model, generally speaking, very broadly speaking, is you, as an engineer, if you don't manufacture yourself and you have a manufacturing partner in Asia, is you draw it up on the computer, you sort of create the design package and you have some ideas in terms of what you want to ride like but you send that package off to asia and then you and then a product shows shows up and you you know with a test report and everything saying this it did this this and this and then you can say well can we change this and so you generally get sort of this back and forth like depending on how long you're willing to do it but generally like three iterations is kind of what people seem to have an appetite for and so you know you sort of get those three iterations the difference with Envy was that we had we had the expertise. We know how to make stuff. We love to make stuff. And yes, we sat there and people were telling us, you guys are going to fail. You need to go to Asia or else, you know, because they liked the product we were making, but they didn't see how it was scalable. Yeah. Well, how did you get that expertise initially? I mean, you said you had the expertise, but it sounds like some people were kind of learning as they were doing, right? Well, so for, as far as expertise, I guess the expertise I refer to is we had guys that understood how to manufacture carbon. Like they'd been doing it at Reynolds. They'd been doing it at Easton. They'd been doing it at specialized. They'd been to Asia. They'd, they'd seen how, you know, factories are set up and they, they understood how to design tooling. The molds themselves are a lot of the magic in a carbon part. Okay. You know, a, a really great concept can end up as a really horrible product if the mold itself isn't really great. <laughs> and so there's just these, these little subtleties of things we understood in terms of when I say expertise, we, we knew how to make about one of anything we wanted, you know, like we, we understand how to make a really good mold and how to maximize that mold's design for carbon. And, and we understand laminates and all that thing. And, and obviously, yeah, we're, it's not like we had all, all the expertise. It's definitely something we're things we thought we knew back then are definitely different today, but we've, you know, been learning for 12 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so building upon that growth, but yeah, initially like setting up a massive wheel factory where you can, you know, produce hundreds of rims a day. No, we really had no clue. So, I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of things that were just pure sweat equity and a painful learning curves that you have to go through that really got us to where we are today. And did we have all the expertise in terms of knowing what we didn't know? No, but we did believe we could do it, I yeah. guess. And so we, we were willing to uh, put forth the effort to learn and make it so just because we saw there, there were really advantages to us being the manufacturers because we get to iterate as much as we want. Like we, we're not limited three iterations of will, for example, we can make literally dozens and dozens of different laminate prototypes if we want to. Yeah. And that really gets into other topics, but yeah, I, I think initially it was just this, this reality that like we, the people involved in the project, we all love making stuff and we love seeing the whole process and we like having the control over the process and not being beholden to other people's design philosophies, so to speak. Yeah, it seems like a sort of a long-term investment, especially in the beginning where, you know, it would have been quicker to just put a design together and then ship it off to Asia. I mean, sure, there's some back and forth, but you wouldn't have to like learn how to do a lot of that stuff yourselves. But now that you have that capability, hopefully that means shorter lead times and, and easier product iterations and, and all that stuff. That's, that's an advantage now. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, and even, and back then, I mean, us manufacturing for envy is, 
I mean, it's definitely an area in our sense of pride just because of the challenges and we like the learning curve that was tied to it. And the reason, and you're right, like, you know, a lot of people say like the reason, you know, carbons in Asia is because that's where all the expertise is, but the expertise is there because years and years ago, we collectively as a bike industry chased, chased cheap labor and a bunch of other things. And ultimately we gave them the expertise. We pushed them to have the expertise. It wasn't that we couldn't have done it in the U S it could, you know, and and today you see that you see more and more onshoring as brands are realizing that, you know, a lot of the cost savings and a lot of the benefits that, you know, aren't really truly there anymore that like they used to be. And so you're, you're seeing that and you're seeing more and more U S manufacturing, but it's, it's because, yeah, we, we gave up, we gave up that right of the expertise years ago in a lot of ways. And so we're really proud of the fact that we've been able to make a go of it here in the U S and honestly inspire a lot of other people to be able to do the same. And then, but from a, from just a brand and a product standpoint, like the thing that makes us manufacturing really valuable to envy is our ability to be dynamic and adjust to market trends and adjust quality issues or design iterations all on the fly. Like everything, all the functions of designing a wheel, for example, happen under this roof. There's no, there's no, there are no third parties that we rely on to really produce a wheel. Obviously we have our suppliers from material standpoint, but as far as like the day when the bike industry decided 26 inch wheels are dead and 27.5 was the future, like I didn't have a container full of 26 inch wheels on the ocean <laughs> that we then had to decide, do we blow them out? Do we, you know, or do we just eat this inventory? Cause we, now we can't sell it. Like we just weren't faced with sort of those complex yeah. problems that you get with, you know, trying to forecast massive, you know, inventories from Asia, for example. So it's not, it's not really like, and it's definitely not a U.S. versus Asian manufacturing thing. We do have a factory um, that we're part owners with overseas, and we do manufacture the majority of our components there because we don't have the bandwidth to do it here. And again, like when it comes to the mass production of forks and the volumes we need, like we don't have the space and the bandwidth to do it here. And, you know, they make great products there. But I mean, it's it's just picking and choosing our battles in terms of what we want to make and produce on the here in the U.S. And we just generally the line for that is IP. So if, mm-hmm. if it's technology that we really want to protect and we feel is unique, then we manufacture it here until, you know, and that's why wheels have maintained their manufacturing here in the U S where something like a mountain bike handlebar where, yeah, we have our design laminates, but there's nothing like super proprietary about the construction of a bar other than like our knowledge of how to make a really nice riding handlebar. Like, that 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 makes a lot more sense for overseas production. So yeah. So what would you say? I mean, you talked about market trends and things like that, sort of driving the direction of the business. What, what would you say is sort of on your radar for product design decisions in 2019? I mean, is it are people looking for like lighter weight stuff? Are they looking for you know more durable equipment? Is it ride feel? I mean, what is What's kind of the trending thing right now that people are are going after the hardest? Yeah, that's interesting. Honestly, I think ride feel is really, really kind of a hot topic right now. I mean, it seems like a lot of our a lot of our focus in terms of the bike is is on that is on that area. Like, what is the ride feel we're looking for? I mean, we talk about the mission of MB being to create a better ride experience. Like, we're really focused on the things that we want in the rides we do. Like, I mean, we've been very successful today, like building the products we want to ride. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a learning curve tied to a lot of that, like 
we we're on now we we are currently selling our third some yeah our basically our third generation of mountain wheels Mm -hmm. and you know looking at the evolution of those wheels is pretty awesome i mean a lot has changed in 10 years you know like (laughs) our original downhill rim was a 23 millimeter internal yeah and in in our impact testing you know that 23 millimeter downhill wheel could do like a would would take like a 10 inch impact on our test fixture whereas today you know our downhill wheel is a 30 millimeter internal and it can and it go it maxes out the impact machine up at around like 18 or so inches and it wow. takes repetitive hits at that and it's just like a lot has changed over over that time but as we've gotten better so originally it was like let's make lightweight but strong products like let's try to find what is the perfect inflection point for light and strong mm-hmm. and then as we learn new things about new materials new resins whatever allow us to get the strong thing and then i think the industry as a whole like lightweight is definitely cool and neat but I think we're sort of at a place where we've gone to the extremes of like, okay, this is really as light as I want to get. But now I'm at this ridiculously low weight. I feel like I'm sacrificing ride feel or I'm sacrificing something else. And so maybe it's maybe lightweight isn't the real pursuit. And for Envy, lightweight's been a it's been a we've been considered a lightweight brand, but it's only because of our our manufacturing techniques and the way we the way we manipulate the carbon has allowed us to make a really lightweight part, but that was never the end in and of itself. It's just the, it's just the byproduct of our processes. Mm-hmm. And so as we've pursued more of the ride quality and the durability, reliability thing, you know, weights have come up a little bit or stayed the same, but we don't pursue weight. It's really more like finding that balance. And, and again, ride quality is a big deal nowadays. Like, and it goes beyond just the carbon construction itself. We're talking, you know, lacing patterns and spokes and tire pressure and like, the laminate of the rim definitely can help it. You know, it, it's going beyond just the carbon structure because we've, we're getting fairly, it's, it's, there's some diminishing returns there, right? Like at some point we're going to max out the capabilities unless some crazy new material or resin system or something comes out that allows us to do something really different from the actual carbon itself. We're looking at uh, those, those ancillary marginal gains we can get from other aspects of the wheel design. So, and handlebars and seat posts and, and then also just experiential things. So big, big part of the new M series was, is just this idea of like, pinch flying. Like I said, we're looking how to improve the ride experience. And like a common complaint with our athletes and our personal rides was like, Hey, we made these carbon rims. They're really durable, but the problem is they're really stiff and the leading edge of the rim is really sharp and I'm cutting tires like crazy. And now to prevent cutting tires, now I'm running downhill tires. I'm running more pressure than I want to. And so it really became like a question of, okay, these things are pissing me off when I ride my bike. How do we address those things? And I hate flats. I really don't like getting a flat tire. And I also really don't like having this high-performance carbon rim, but then putting a really heavy DH tire on it uh, or something at more pressure than I really want to run. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with the new M series, it was really a focus on that whole holistic approach to ride quality. Okay. Because it's like, okay, how do we build the rim that allows people to run the tires they want to run at the pressures that are good or the pressures that people really want to and should be riding from a performance standpoint and that's sort of created the the concept around um, the new m series and so we you know we ended up with two new technologies one for the cross-country trail crowd that's a lighter weight focus um, but does the job in terms of preventing pinch flats and then on the other side the gravity side we have a completely different solution that's 
it's unprecedented in its ability to eliminate a pinch flat. And people underestimate, there's people out there that don't pinch flat, and that there's a lot of things that they have done probably to prevent them. They, you know, yeah, so there's some people just don't ride hard and fast enough to, to have that sort of a failure. Mm-hmm. But the, there's a whole, whole other crowd of people that are riding downhill tires and they're running, you know, 35 PSI in a 2.3 or 2.4 inch tire. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, they never pinch flat because they're riding those pressures and that type of tire. But what they don't realize is what they're giving up is the ability to, that there's technology out there now that a lot would allow them to have a much lighter weight setup and all the things, like all the things they want, but they don't know exist necessarily because they're, they're happy. They're not having issues and their bikes reliable, but they could save weight, get a better ride quality, better ride fill simply by, you know, a new wheel set, lower tire pressure, et cetera. And then the other piece is a broken rim is most frequently preceded by a flattened tire. So um, that's the other piece of puzzles. Like since we launched these new technologies that prevent pinch flatting, we see a fraction of the broken rims that we've seen in the past. Huh. Makes sense. Which makes, makes sense. Cause yeah. that your number one protection, your barrier between the ground and your rim is the tire. So, or the air in your tire. Right. <laughs> so having that thing inflated on your ride is a, is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we went on a tangent there, but I, I guess the original question is like, what are the trends and what are we looking at? And it, again, it's, I think you know when we said it's really about ride fill and the whole ride experience is a, in general, like product is getting really good. It's getting very refined, like durability, reliability, you know, for MB are, are definitely Trump things like lightweight, like durability, reliability, or number one in terms of what we're trying to achieve. And again, we always have this, we always ask ourselves the question of like, is this a product that's going to piss me off or leave me stuck on the side of the trail? <laughs> right. I mean, and we can't, ha- has an MV product left somebody stuck and stranded on the side of the trail before? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're definitely trying to design a performance product. You know, people are, people definitely talk about like, well, that carbon rim, carbon rims break or something, or that, that rim I bought broke. And it's like, well, we can make a rim that doesn't break. That's not outside of our wheelhouse. You know, we make four different grades of impact resistant or durability, four grades of durability in our carbon wheel line. So, you know, if you're a cross country guy and you never, ever, that your number one priority is never, ever breaking wheel ever in your life, but mm-hmm. you really want to ride carbon, buy an Enduro wheel like that. The technology exists for you to have a wheel that you will never, ever break. That's still lightweight and carbon. And so it's, but the reality is, is people really are chasing performance, you know, like people want the product that is lightweight and stiff and strong, and has a nice ride quality for how they're riding it. And so that's, that's what we're constantly trying to refine and make sure that we have the appropriate balance of. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, if we think about things like weight or, you know, even durability or like impact resistance, those are pretty like quantifiable things. But if you're now talking about ride experience, I mean, that's, that can be pretty subjective and it's a challenge I imagine to like explain that to people. I mean, without them giving the wheels a try or, you know, really comparing it to other things is definitely more of like a marketing challenge and a, a product education challenge. So what, what are some of the other challenges I guess that you face as someone who's responsible for the overall like customer experience within the bike industry? It's an inherent challenge to just the industry we're in. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different angles to take with it. I mean, one challenge is the experience that it, it, one is just having a consistent experience across basically an omni channel mm-hmm. distribution model where 
we have distributors in foreign countries. We have, you can buy direct from Envy. You can go to a retailer. And so trying to build a, con, a customer experience that's consistent, you know, if you're, whether you're buying in Japan from a, a dealer there or buying direct from Envy is, is a huge challenge, right? Like you having control, like once the, like if we're shipping to a dealers and dealers in a lot of ways, we, we lose control of the consumer experience, at least beyond the products as soon as it ships out to a dealer, right? Like we don't know who the guy on the sales floor is. We don't know what his experience or his opinions of carbon are. So there's just that challenge where we we're trying to build tools for education and trying to create, you know, these, the experience that we want people to have it mm-hmm. at all, at all levels. So be it if you buy from a dealer through an online store, like competitive cyclist or, or direct from envy, like that, that experience is more or less, the same level of customer service and support, no matter where you get an Emmy product from. So there's like, there's that challenge. And then there's the challenge that you were just touching on, which I think is really the, the hard one is we have, we have a lot of competition these days, right? Like there's a lot of carbon wheels and people are getting very comfortable with carbon at this point, but there's a lot of people still that are coming off of aluminum for the first time and they're going to carbon and maybe they go to a, less desirable carbon brand because it was the more affordable option but then they're like i didn't ride that good or it did this and this and i had a lot of pinch flats on it or i broke it or whatever like whatever the thing is that they did like maybe they went from a narrow internal rim width to a wide internal rim width but they never adjusted their tire pressure to compensate for the volume so yeah all of a sudden their aluminum wheel that rode really really svelte and smooth now feels really harsh and stiff on the carbon wheel, but they didn't change the tire pressure. Nobody educated them on that. So I, I feel like a envy feels a personal responsibility to the consumer to help educate on tire pressure. Like that's, that's a big thing. And you know, what happens with volume and, and carbon is inherently different than aluminum. So there's, there's a lot of challenges that present themselves that way. And then there's the whole challenge of like what makes an envy rim and a ride experience different than another carbon rim ride experience. And so that that is sort of one of those deals where the the answer to that is you really just have to ride to know and understand, but then be able to create that environment where they can ride a product back to back and really feel the subtleties and the differences mm-hmm. is is hard. And that and that's a real thing. Like if somebody's coming off of an aluminum rim and they're going to a carbon rim, most of the carbon rims out there these days are pretty good. And so and compared to an aluminum rim are going to feel very different. And it's often going to deliver all those things that they had told, have told themselves that upgrading to a carbon wheel set is going to deliver to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be lighter. It's going to feel more, it's going to feel like it tracks better, does this, that, or the other, whatever story they've told themselves they, they want <laughs> out of the carbon rim, like they're going to probably be able to get from about any manufacturer if they're just going from aluminum to carbon. And that's great. That really helps us in terms of the fact that people will get really comfortable with carbon, but it's, it's just a much more challenging, like you said, it becomes a real marketing and commercial challenge to be able to give people the opportunity to experience the envy difference or whatever you want to, you know, as we to experience that difference Mm -hmm. and it's such a competitive marketplace, I guess. So yeah, lots of challenges. (laughs) Yeah. That's really hard for sure. I mean, especially with just all the different ways that people get information these days, you know, whether it's online or from friends or guy at the bike shop. Yeah, I can see how that's a, a real big challenge. So I want to switch gears real quick and ask you, you know, obviously you're a rider yourself. And from what I understand, you're also a family man. So how do you find time to be successful at work and at home? 
while also making time to go out and ride your bike? It's the age old question, right? Balance or whatever we want to call that life, life, life balance. You know, for bike riding, it's, I've, I've got three kids and I've obviously got great support at home with my wife. She obviously does great things there. So (laughs) it makes my life easy having her. That helps. Yep. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I do dawn patrol, you know, 5am mornings on the bike or skiing or whatever it is are pretty regular things for me. And Mm -hmm. working at Envy is good in the way that at least like in the winter, like we maximize daylight hours, like we do lunch rides. So we go ride our bikes at lunch and we work later, you know? And so I, I spend a lot of time at my computer between 8 PM or after the kids go to bed and midnight working. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I do. And we, we, we all, a lot of us, a lot of us do. Um, and it's just, it's busy, man. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, every once in a while it gets a little overwhelming and then, you know, something has to give and, you know, and whatever that is, but yeah. it's just about prioritizing the daylight hours. And then if you got to wake up early and you prioritize riding your bike for whatever event or training, then like, yeah, get your, get your ass out of bed, <laughs> go ride your bike or <laughs> right. get the lights out and go ride at night. And so it's really about just squeezing it in wherever, wherever and whenever he can. And kind of goes in the order of, you know, family's got stuff going on and we're doing family stuff and right. work's going on and got to get the job done. We've got, you know, priorities there. And then every other minute, any other gap in time is filled with riding bikes and skiing or whatever. So it's just, it, it's not easy, I guess. It definitely takes some, uh, some fortitude to keep convincing yourself and motivating yourself to get out of bed or whatever to go do these things. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to the amount of passion that you need, passion to get out the door and make time for biking and stuff. And then also just to being in the industry itself. Again, you, know, you mentioned some of the challenges, some of the drawbacks to working in the industry uh, compared to other industries where maybe you're going to make more money or have better hours. But again, yeah, it's, it's all about having that passion. And yeah, I don't know if people, I don't know if people necessarily get that, like that aren't in the industry or or maybe see themselves as, you know, wanting to be in the industry that, yeah, it can be, it can be tough for sure. And do you ever find yourself like feeling burned out? I mean, you're, you're not going to answer that honestly, but, (laughs) but like, like, do you say, do you ever feel like, oh man, like if I see another bike, like I need a break from all this or, you know, (laughs) you you obviously, you have to have a lot of passion. I mean, you can't get to that point, I guess. Yeah. I won't, I won't beat around the bush. I mean, totally. But we living in Utah, we sort of get a hard start and stop. We have four seasons and it's literally a blizzard outside right now. And we, I get my time off the bike. I spend a lot of time skiing. And so I, I think I, it's good that way. And then I'm, I, I mean, I ride mountain bikes, I ride gravel bikes and I ride road bikes. And so I do get bored if I'm only on, like I did dirty Kanza last year and I, all I did was ride a gravel bike and a road bike for the most part leading up to that event. And I literally didn't clean the dirt off from dirty Kanza until like two months later. And I actually didn't even do it. One of, one of the the, one of the owner's kids was kind enough to go out and wash everybody's bikes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think if I'm balanced that way amongst the, the disciplines of cycling, like I've, I've spent a lot of time racing all three disciplines and I still love riding mountain bikes. And I, it seems like it generally goes something like I ride road bikes in the spring until the, the dirt roads clear off and then the gravel bike comes off. And then by the time I'm sick of gravel, all the mountain bike trails that I love are, are in prime condition. And in the fall, I pretty much only ride a mountain bike, you know? So it's, it's like Q1's road, Q2's gravel, Q3 and Q4 
or mountain bikes and then it's back on the road bike once the snow starts falling or whatever. So the bike industry, no doubt, like people definitely have uh, misconceptions and and I guess it's different between brands because I, I, and brands and cultures, but like riding is part of the culture at Envy. It's, it's important to the brand's health and the product's health. Like if the day we stop riding is the day engineers and myself and product teams stop riding bikes are the days that we're going to cease to be relevant because we're going to, I mean, a lot of our inspiration for the products we make, I would dare say 90% of the products we've produced and make have all been inspired by our own ride experiences. You know, we have professional teams and athletes that help validate the concepts and the ideas and, you know, get the product up to the level it needs to be. But nearly every idea we've ever had that's a good one has happened from us riding our bikes. And so it's not really hard to look around the bike industry and see some brands that are struggling or not or whatever, and then realize that like nobody at those companies is actually riding a bike, which is really Hmm. sad. Like I think if you're going to be in this bike industry and you're not going to make the money and (laughs) that you can make elsewhere, it's like go somewhere else. But like, if not like ride your bike, like get on your bike, Mm -hmm. understand the product, understand the, and I think the most successful brands and products in the industry right now are the ones where the companies foster a culture around the bike and riding the bike. Because again, like life's, if you're in the bike industry, like life's too short not to be riding your bike. And, and how can you, how can you know what the consumer's experience is unless you're going out and using the product in the way that they are. And it's great to have athletes and whatever that will tell you things about your product, but it's not, it's, it's different, you know, especially if there's a disconnect, like not everybody's a professional downhill racer and, or a professional enduro or a professional cross country racer. Like most of the people you're selling product to are, you know, the 95% of the people you're selling product to are not elite level riders. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's important that a broad range of people are riding your product and including the people that work at the company. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So living in Utah, what's your favorite spot to ride mountain bikes? Oh man. I mean, there's obviously like great trails, right? There's great trails right outside our door here. Um, but it's Utah. So, I mean, we've got Southern Utah, we've got where we have St. George and Moab and then everything in between. So we have Alpine to desert. And again, it's, I get bored with the same sort of terrain all the time. And so I love riding in St. George and I have trails I just love in Moab. And then there's just the local trails that you just know, like the back of your hand. And there's that that's always fun. And every once in a while you have to get the hell out of here and go ride somewhere where it rains so that you can understand what it's like to have traction. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's great riding right outside the door here. And so, I mean, it's, I, it's hard to say it's a, what's the favorite because mm-hmm. you have to mix it up. Otherwise, anything gets kind of boring. But we are really blessed with uh, having everything from, you know, Moab to high alpine riding within a four-hour drive either direction. So Yeah. So we're going to take a break real quick. But when we come back, we're going to go through the process of how a new carbon component is produced from start to finish. Stay tuned. Join Single Tracks at Mulberry Gap in North Georgia, March 23rd through 24th, 2019 for our annual get together, the Ride and Rally. We designed this event so that mountain bikers at all levels can ride new trails, try new bikes, learn new skills, and make new friends. Registration includes access to mini skills clinics by Ninja Mountain Bike Performance, food and shuttles from Mulberry Gap, Sweetwater Beer, specialized demo bikes, and commemorative swag. And the event benefits the North Georgia Mountain Bike Association. 
The ride and rally is limited to 74 riders, and lodging at Mulberry Gap will fill up quickly, so sign up today. Go to singletracks.com slash RNR to register for one or both days of the ride and rally. That's singletracks.com slash RNR. See you there. And we're back. So Jake, Envy is known for producing some pretty expensive high-end products. And for that reason, the brand does get its fair share of criticism from some folks. So what do you say to those people who question why Envy products are so expensive? Yeah, we've definitely had the criticism. There's there's a couple things. I think the first thought is like, have you ridden the product and have you experienced the difference that we are delivering? And so there's sort of like a ride them first, come talk to me later sort of <laughs> yeah. question for some that maybe you're criticizing without the experience to know the difference because that can be a thing. Criticism is definitely something that fuels us. I mean, we love being challenged and Envy didn't set out to be like a a luxury sort of premium unattainable brand. Mm-hmm. We we set out to make the best product we possibly can. We always have said like we're not going to let costs dictate the final outcome of the product. And so, you know, that's that's just been our our mantra and that's results often in the pricing of the product. I mean, we sell to the channel, so we have our costs. We have then a built-in margin structure. So the product goes from us to a distributor, a distributor sells it to a dealer, the dealer sells it to a consumer. I mean, that's a thing. But I mean, really the ultimate thing is like come to Envy, take a tour, you know, meet the people who were, you know, funding food on the table for over 150 households. I mean, we have uh, nearly 200 employees here at the building. So we're, you know, we're creating jobs and we have, ex- we have costs and expenses and we're, mm-hmm. we're not just a brand. Like, I think that's a big thing people don't understand about Envy. It's not just a brand with a, with a marketing story. And yeah, we have a, we have a great brand and we have a great story and we do have good marketing, but um, we are a manufacturer, which is very different than many of the brands in the industry. We, you know, we are running a full-time machine shop. We have I mean, it's, it's just every raw materials handling. We have shipping warehouse. We have uh, all the functions, R and D marketing, the test lab, like none of this stuff is outsourced to third parties. I mean, we definitely have partners. We outsource some things too, but like all these functions sit under one roof. We have technicians that are maintaining machines and presses and ovens. And those ovens have computers attached to them that are running programs for the wheel cures. And, you know, there's just so much more involved being a manufacturer and has costs associated with it, right? And yeah. these premium products, I, I guess the different. I mean, there's brands that are pushing innovation and technology, and, and they're the ones footing the bill for footing the bill for progress. Yeah. And then there's those that follow, right? That there's those that can go and buy a product that we make or somebody else makes, and chop it up, burn it up, and figure out how to replicate it, and take it to and do it cheaper or whatever point of origin or point of location isn't necessarily the driving factor there. But I mean, it, there's just a difference whether you're making one prototype or a hundred prototypes. I mean, something, a unique little stat about like our M series development, since we're talking mountain bikes mostly is we have four different families of wheel. And then there's a 29 and a 27 and a half inch model of each of those. And then and say our M6 series family of wheels, we have, that's our trail wheels. We have a 30 millimeter internal, a 35, a 40, and now an 85 millimeter turn with the new fat bike rim. Mm-hmm. And through the R&D process, we were, we basically to bring a product to market. And since we're going to talk about that, it's it, generally speaking about a hundred, a hundred's about an average number of rim prototypes required to bring 
a single one of those wheels to market. Wow. So that's wheels that are being tested in the lab. That's wheels that just get scrapped because bladders blew or something in manufacturing. That's wheels also being shipped out to athletes, to our test ride team. And, it, you know, the number adds up pretty quick. Like all of a sudden you're like, wow, we made a hundred of each one of those sizes in. And so, I mean, that, again, so there's development costs, but yeah, I mean, ultimately we're just fully invested. We, we have all these functions under the roof and there's costs associated with that. And that's where the envy pricing becomes a real thing. Mm-hmm. But we're, I mean, we're looking for ways to add more value as well. Like, again, we're not aiming to be some exclusive premium brand. We're trying to be premium in terms of the product's performance, but not sort of an unattainable type thing. And I mean, a good example is, you know, for years we've just hubs from third-party providers, right? Like we were not hub manufacturers. Mm -hmm. We now on the roadside, road and gravel, we now have a full offering of Envy branded hubs. And they're not just some cheap hubs that we source from Asia and put our name on. They're like, they've been a full development. But the reason for the development and the investment is there's performance elements for it, like having built wheels in competitors' hubs for 10 years. We have a very intimate understanding of the pros and cons of each of those designs. And we said, okay, how do we address all the, how do we take the good things and build upon them? And how do we correct the areas where there can be improvements? And, you know, we just launched alloy rim and disc brake model hubs for road just a couple of weeks ago. And then we have a full carbon rim brake model hub as well. But the hub, performance it's a standalone hub it could sell and compete against the best hubs on the market but from a costing standpoint we invested heavily in hub manufacturing so now what we've been able to do on the road side of things we've been able to bring our msrps down to from what was twenty nine hundred dollars kind of an average msrp down to twenty five fifty without any sacrifice in technology so that's just like a good example of you know we're not trying to be at some super uber high price brand. And we're definitely seen that way, especially in certain markets um, overseas. But like, that's not, that's not necessarily who we are as a brand. We're all about performance and we're not Mm -hmm. whatever the cost, if we can bring our costs down and make our wills and technology available to more people, that's what we're, that's what we're striving to do today. And we've, we're making awesome strides on the roadside and um, when you talk about what's coming in 19, like that's definitely an area we're working on on the mountain. It doesn't, you can obviously see where, where we might go with that, given yeah. that we just launched road hubs. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good. That's a good tip. I like it. We have the same, we have the same motivation on the mountain bike side of things too. So yeah, that's a long answer to a short question, but yeah. Well, I, I wonder if one of the things, I mean, just, just talking to you and, and hearing the story of the brand and going from like edge components to the name Envy, I mean, how, how, where did the name come from? I mean, could that be part of what people see is it's like, oh, yeah, I have these wheels and you're going to envy me. Like, was that, was that part of it? Is that like maybe part of the perception? Yeah. The, the transition from the name from edge to Envy is really, I know that's a whole story in itself, but so edge, we young startup, ambitious trying to grow the brand. We started shipping product, started getting demand in Europe, started shipping product to Europe, got a cease and desist from some, <laughs> somebody who owns the brand yeah, or owned the name edge in Europe. And, um, as a result, we were sitting in a, we were relegated to either pay a ridiculous licensing fee at the time, which seemed like a ridiculous licensing fee at the time for the name edge, 
or we were like, you know, like, there's not a whole lot of brand equity in the name edge. Nobody really knows who we are. We haven't really sold that much product. Like let's, let's change the name. Like we could probably change the name. It's an option. So we actually hired a marketing firm to like brainstorm a bunch of ideas and, you know, take all of our personalities and the, what we sort of define the brand. They came back with this whole report and we read all the names they presented them all. And we're like, man, these all suck. And this is not us. <laughs> so, so we're like, okay, lesson learned marketing firm, no good for what we were trying to accomplish there. So we actually sat in a conference room. It was like, it was a few weeks before Eurobike 2010 and we were like getting ready to ship all the stuff to Eurobike and we had to like have all the names changed to what it was going to be if we were going to do it. And we were literally stuck in a conference room all day brainstorming different ideas. And one of the things with the end with the edge name was that it was an anagram. So it was spelled or the logo was the same forward and backward. Oh yeah. And we were just had a ton of names brainstorming and somebody threw up the name envy. Maybe it was one of the owners put up the name envy and somebody's like, Oh, we can spell it with an E. And then we're like, Oh, that's envy has negative connotations. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. but it was like, you know, yes, it, there is that, but there's also like this, this concept that like the ult- ultimate performance, like there's a, there's this desire. And it was really more about like something that's desirable because of its performance, because of it's what it's achieved. Yeah. And that really like, I think made it a viable name for the brand. And honestly, I think, right. Yeah. Like I'm sure it has some negative connotations to some people, but it's, it's really for us. It's about like this journey. Like if you think about the things that people do have envy for that, they kind of lust after it's generally things that have been really successful or people that have really worked hard to get to where they are today. And if there is an element of envy, it's like envying this, yeah, this destination that is perfection. That, it's aspiration. Yeah, it, it really is about being an aspirational product and an aspirational brand, and uh, and that's really what envy is about: is like doing everything we can to make the best product possible. And yeah, you know, people need things to aspire to, and like if envy were to go away tomorrow, there's only going to be another brand that would then have to step in and try to fill the fill the void that was left because people want aspirational products. They want things that they can dream about. They want things that they have to work hard to achieve. And without it, you know, you would create a vacuum. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a good explanation, right? That it's, you're not, it's not to say you envy the product or you envy somebody for having those wheels. You envy that level of performance and that, uh, you aspire to, you know, make yourself better and to, to get to that level. So that's good. And I have to say too, the logo, it's gotta be one of my favorites, if not my favorite in the industry, because of what you said, how you can read it both ways. And yeah, it's, it's a really cool brand for sure. I mean, I think, and I think that's just, I think that's the luck part of doing business. Like, I think we got really lucky. (laughs) I I, I mean, I honestly think that cease and desist letter was just the luckiest, best thing that could have ever happened to us. Cause I honestly don't know I mean, I think we probably still grew around, but I don't know if we would have been able to achieve sort of the brand recognition that we have today without mm-hmm. that name change and without that exercise, and without that challenge that was presented to us at that point yeah. in our early years. So, yeah, that's really cool. So as promised, can you walk us through briefly sort of the process of producing a new carbon component? For sure. So, and let's do maybe let's, let's start with some, I mean, let's just do something easy, like a handlebar. Hopefully that's, is that an easier one? I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, handlebar <laughs> wheel. Probably easier than a wheel, hopefully. It all sort of tracks the same um, process to a certain degree. So initially there's an idea, right? So there's this point where somebody has an idea, something flavored, they're out on a ride 
and some concept was was born. Let's let's use let's use wheels for example. Wheels are wheels are easier, okay, or more interesting, I think, from that standpoint. So let's take this whole concept of like our protective rim strip. So we're out on rides, we're having flat tires, we're having a bunch of issues. So we say, okay, we have to come up with a solution that preserves the ride quality of the carbon rim, whatever, and also helps protect the tire and prevent the rim. So something that protects the rim and tire, tire from flatting, rim from cracking, what's, what can we look at there? And so there's this concept, right? Some idea is born. So from there, it goes into sort of a behind-the-scenes R&D process. And this could be a handlebar, too, or somebody's like, hey, we want, we want to make a downhill carbon handlebar and we want it to be super compliant or really have, you know, really damp something or other. So mm-hmm. it goes into an R and D phase that's completely behind the scenes outside of all sort of view from just all the other operations of business, right? Where we're just testing out concepts. Is it real secretive? I mean, is it like, I imagine Apple is where people are like carting in and out of like different rooms and nobody knows what anybody's working on. Not to that level, but it's more like people are too busy doing their day-to-day stuff to really like. <laughs> they don't get, care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it and it becomes secretive depending on you know it depends on who you are. But if you're in the building, like you may know about it, you may not. And yeah, it just depends. Like if if the idea came from somebody in customer service, then we're probably keeping them updated on like if work is happening in R and D. But so generally, that that idea goes to R and D, and so. With our protective rim strip, with that with that concept, it started out as a bunch of crazy ideas. Like we were putting rubber bumpers inside of rims. We were molding things into the rims. We were put. I mean, there's just you just start. They basically have free reign and somewhat of a you know they have a budget, but they have sort of free reign to just try crazy one-off ideas to see if there's any validity to the concept. So hmm. with a downhill handlebar, for example, that you want to be super compliant. You know, they're going to go and design some laminate that. You know, it's just designed to be super flexy and, you know, maybe four different laminates. And then they're going to say, okay, here's four proofs of concept. We want to, you know, there's that we've done some rudimentary testing or initial testing to determine that it's, they're safe enough to ride. Now we feel good enough about these concepts that we think we can manufacture any one of these and they pass sort of the safety, minimum safety requirements um, so that we can actually start doing some ride testing. And so after a product is, sort of proof of concept, at least being able to say like, Hey, we can make one to 10 of these and it's generally safe. Then it goes to a ride testing phase where we start riding. And in the meantime, there's also a business case for the product being written usually by myself from the product on the product side of things where I'm looking at the market, talking to dealers, talking to other manufacturers, talking to athletes, and just trying to get an idea of like, what the story is with the product. So we're creating a business case for it. Like what is opportunity? What, you know, how many do we need to make if we make it, et cetera. So all that's happening at the same time that, you know, engineering's doing their prototyping and, and then, you know, it, then it's just an iterative process. So again, this is what, this is one of the beauty beauties of uh, us manufacturing or just manufacturing where you're located. It doesn't have to be the U S it's just manufacturing your own product under the same roof as all the other functions. And, we then make prototypes and we ride them. And if we like one prototype, then we'll expound on the idea and then we'll, you know, have a few more iterations. And sometimes we, sometimes it takes, you know, two to three prototypes and sometimes it takes 20. And once we pick a, once we pick a pony and a winner, then there's a whole process of, of commercial or, or scaling it for massive mass production. So for wheels, you know, you have molds. And so 
you can basically do all your R and D and prototyping with say one mold or whatever number of production mold or prototype molds, but then you have mm-hmm. to go and machine 20 or 30 molds, whatever, to be able to deliver to the forecast. Mm-hmm. So then there's, it takes time to, you know, go and cut all the tooling and then you have to train people in the back. You have to train the manufacturing staff, you know, the layup operators, the cut and ply. You have to, you have to bring all that out and, and uh, train it all out onto the manufacturing floor. So that, that takes some time as well, just getting everybody up to speed on this new product and any new layup techniques or new processes that have to be put in place. And in the meantime, graphics and, you know, the design of the product, packaging, installations, and then, you know, just preparing all the marketing and commercialization tools necessary to launch the product. And then, of course, once everything is more or less looking good, that's, uh, you know, at some point you launch the product and uh, there, there, there she goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a real brief overview, but that kind of basically it goes from concept to R&D and prototyping. And then there's ride testing and lab testing in the middle. And then it's put it's pushed out into the manufacturing floor. And yeah, and once once it's once we're reasonably sure we can manufacture it and and scrap is at a level that is within the budget, we can launch it. So, yeah. So you mean by scrap, you mean product that doesn't pass quality inspection or, or whatever. Is that, is that it? Or are we talking literally scrap? Like you're cutting sheets of fabric? No, well, no, well, no, it's literally like if there's some sort of miss, just mishaps that happen in manufacturing. So if mm-hmm. carbon is carbon manufacturing is a finicky beast and we don't, we don't uh, really paint our rims or do anything as far as a post post manufacturing, like cosmetics, we put decals on wheels. And so if, if wheels come out with big dry spots in them or chips or gaps or whatever sort of thing, then they, where you are generally not comfortable putting it on a retail floor, that's scrap. So it, maybe it's, maybe it can be used for athletes, but generally, you know, there's, there's various degrees of it. Sometimes the the bladder that goes inside the wheel blows. So it's, it's basically a balloon. And if the balloon gets a leak in it, then the whole, the whole wheel is ruined. So that's what scrap is. So it's really like, I, I made a hundred, I made a hundred rims and we only allow for five of those hundred to go bad, for example, or something like yeah. we're looking for a really low scrap rate, something, you know, say, say it's 10% or less. And so we have to make sure that of those hundred, at least 90 of them are good, yeah. for example. So that's what we're talking about scrap. And there's obviously costs associated with that, but that's all built into the whole thing as well. So, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and that's one of the things that obviously leads to the cost of the final product is, is that level of quality control and making sure that you're putting out a good product. I mean, you could, you could keep costs low by being less consistent or or allowing more things through. Um, but obviously that's, that's not what customers want. Well, yeah. And that's, that's a whole other, that's a whole other ball of worms. Cause we don't necessarily, I mean, we do factor those in, but like some products have higher scrap rates than others. So it's sort of all like we charge the same price for all wheels for the most part. So there's kind of a flat price on wheels and yeah. Even if some are slightly more difficult to manufacture. Yeah. So like super deep wheels use more carbon. So like our super deep dish road wheels or it's like a downhill wheel is going to use more carbon than like a lightweight XC or a climbing road wheel. Um, and then some are easier to make than others. And so there's, it's a real, it's a real blended situation where we're trying to from a manufacturing and just an operation standpoint. Yeah. We're constantly trying to, 
gain and achieve greater efficiency on the manufacturing side because it, mm-hmm. yeah, the more we're able to do that, the more it allows us to, you know, bring prices down at, at a point or whatever. So, yeah, that makes sense. Well, Jake, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I know I learned a ton and I think our listeners will as well. So thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, you can learn more about Envy products at envy.com. That's E-N-V-E.com. And you can also keep up with the latest news from Envy on single tracks. Uh, just go to our website and you can subscribe to our email list there as well. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.